This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Assemble HCI Center supports an undergraduate course called Life Skills for College Students as a way to support student development through college and provide them with tools to cope with life stresses. Dr. D'Artagna Scorza is a perfect fit to teach this course. D'Artagna is a U.S. Navy Iraq War veteran, double Bruin, a board member of the Inglewood Unified School District, lecturer in the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA, and the founder and executive director of the Social Justice Learning Institute, a nonprofit organization that works to help communities achieve health and educational equity. As chair of the Inglewood Unified School District's Measure GG campaign, D'Artagna helped secure $90 million in school improvement bonds to renovate Inglewood schools. He was also named a 2010 Education Pioneers Fellow and a 2013-14 Business Alliance for Local Living Economies Fellow. But it's not the titles or awards that make D'Artagna such an inspirational person. It is his great sense of empathy and innate ability to empower others. Today, D'Artagna talks about the key moments in his life, from studying abroad in South Africa to joining the military that have shaped his worldview and perspective. Join me as I ask D'Artagna about his life journey and the meaningful work that he's doing in his own backyard and across the country to empower people and communities to thrive. Welcome, D'Artagna. So, Dart, so great having you here today and uh, talking about what great work you do and who you are. And never forget when I first met you and we approached you to be the MC for our first Seminole Healthy Campus Initiative celebration. And you just jumped right at it and said, yes, absolutely. And Mick DeLuca recommended you so highly and said, you know, Dart is just like this amazing leader and spokesperson and Triple Bruin, right? <laughs> and double Bruin. Or double right. Bruin. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think the best, you know, I'd love to start not just with the story of of how I met you, but like your life story, because I think it kind of would put you in context to the rest of our conversation and give people a real sense of who you are and, and the depth and breadth of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, I really appreciate yeah. the opportunity to be here. You know, I I grew up here in Los Angeles, and having grown up here in L.A., I came later on to understand that I grew up in what was considered a community that dealt with concentrated disadvantage, right, or concentrated poverty. Was that in uh, the 70s? Or? It was in the, in the 80s. So in the 80s and, and 90s, I lived, my family lived in Watts, and then we moved to Inglewood. And, you know, I remember a number of things. One, I didn't meet my dad until, until I was about six. He was in a halfway house at the time. He had uh, been addicted to drugs, had been in and out of jail. My mom was struggling to make ends meet. She worked uh, as a dispatcher in, in Watts. And then, um, and then when we finally moved out of my grandmother's house to live in Inglewood, so Inglewood is west of South L.A. Right. So it, and it's east interesting. of the airport. And east of, just east of the airport. Yeah. It's, it's the main city you go through when you exit LAX, Los Angeles uh, World Airports. And so what's interesting is... Having sort of made that transition and, and having grown up in Inglewood, I came to see the world through a very, um, I think, dynamic lens. One, my grandmother had 14 kids. Whoa. So we had a huge family, right? We were all over Los Angeles. And because we had such a large family, uh, many of us were all very close growing up. So there was a strong support network that I had growing up. Did you have siblings? I had. And so with my, uh, yeah, so my mom had a daughter, so my sister and I lived together. My dad had additional kids as well, so I have two additional brothers and three additional sisters, of which I'm technically the middle child of all of them, <laughs> but I'm really the older child. So, uh, so, so it's interesting. So I think I think all of that combined helped me understand what it means to grow up in a neighborhood where challenges exist, but also where there's a lot of beauty. So I remember when I was seven years old, um, my family didn't have enough money to buy a birthday cake. My neighbors across the street, there's an elderly couple who, uh, knowing that, baked me a cake. They put seven candles on the cake and they gave me $7 for my birthday. 
And so I remember growing up with these, ma- these amazing contrasts, right? Ricky, who was my neighbor, who I went to school with, and I would play at each other's homes and we would run around the block. There was a point at which you, know, you can go half a mile or a mile around the corner on the bike or a skateboard and have a really good time. And then at some point, I remember seeing our neighborhoods begin to transform, right? There was sort of, was sort of a rise in gun violence. There was a rise in crime in certain parts of our neighborhoods. Like late and 90s? In the early 90s. Early 90s. Yeah, in the early 90s. Late 80s, early 90s, you know, there were kids in my high school who were being shot and killed oh. just outside the school, right? And in the neighborhood and in the alleys around the way. Oh. Is that Inglewood High? This was, this was at Morningside High School uh-huh. in Inglewood. There were a number of challenges that uh, began to emerge. I remember when I got to high school, my brothers and I wanted to work, and I asked my brothers, you know, what they were trying to do in order to get a job, and they said they had a hard time. So they couldn't, they just could not get hired. They could not get a job. So, so I think I, I have these really interesting memories of growing up in Los Angeles. I was around during the time of the 92 uprisings, the Rodney King beatings. And I remember, you know, being in the neighborhood and watching what was happening at that time and looking at the way Was Inglewood spared in that? So at at around that time, I was actually staying with my aunt on 97th in Vermont when the uprisings actually occurred. So we were right near the epicenter. Yeah. So the neighborhoods were cordoned off. South L.A. was blocked in by police officers. Buildings were burning in the streets. Uh You know, stores had been shut down. So I just remember all of these experiences. And I think in many ways... A lot of these these experiences shaped the way um, I come to see the world now, right? So, you know, I saw myself as having grown up in these areas, in, in these neighborhoods where there was concentrated disadvantage, and for a long time, feeling really upset and frustrated by that. You know, when I would travel to go visit my cousin in Marina Del Rey, I would ask, why is it that young folk who come from a place like we do in South L.A., deal with some of the conditions we deal with, and then I go to a more affluent community and we don't see any of this, right? Or what, what, you know, what were the factors that contributed to the conditions that I experienced versus ones that people in more affluent communities um, experienced? So when I got to UCLA in 98, I had some amazing people working with me at Morningside High, and I uh, made it in. This was the first year after the, the elimination of Proposition 209. And was what was the proposition? Uh, proposition, proposition 209 was a ballot initiative that, that eliminated affirmative action in the state of California. So it was really interesting. So, so I made it to UCLA and I experienced quite a bit of culture shock. Uh, it was my first time, I think, you know, I actually don't know if I ever visited the campus prior to coming huh. here. Uh, it was my first time, you know, living in an environment like this. It was my first time. Why did you choose UCLA? Because of financial aid, wow. <laughs> really. I got into Davis and I got into UCLA and I was close to getting into USC, but USC was a little bit delayed uh, and they wanted some additional information. And I and I had gotten the acceptance from UCLA and uh, and they came back with a, just a much better financial aid package, which meant that I, you know, I could afford to actually come. UC Davis didn't offer much in terms of university aid. They didn't offer much at the time in terms of university grants. It was just all loans and my family couldn't afford additional loans. We didn't have, I didn't have a grandparent to go to, to, you know, take out equity from her home to pay for me to go to college. Right. None none of that existed in my family. So I chose to come here, but I also came here because I had a lot of people in my life at the time in my church, uh, at my school community, in other spaces that I had occupied who were saying, look, UCLA is one of the best places for you to go. You, you, you would be a fool to not go to UCLA. Right. And so I, you know, I came and I was here, and I think it was in the context of seeing the types of opportunities that young folk had. Like, when I arrived, I saw people my age, 17, 18 years old, driving around in Mercedes and BMWs. Wow. And here I was, a kid on the bus, right? I didn't understand privilege and wealth in the way in which I did until I arrived here on this campus. You know, How did I, that feel? You know, it was, it was, it was again, it was upsetting. It was? It was upsetting because... Wow. For a while, I was really angry about, I was, I, I was more angry, I was angry more so at the, you know, I was more angry because of the conditions that I lived in. It just, it just didn't seem fair, uh-huh. right? It, it seemed like, you know, I was, and others were good enough to make it into a university like UCLA, and yet we, we, we were struggling, I know I was struggling, to pay for, you know, food and to pay for books and to 
handle expenses that I had associated with going to college. I couldn't go out. I could, there was just, you know, all the things that you would think traditional college students right. are able to do, you know, I couldn't do at the time. So were I actually ended up working. Uh, no, I lived on campus. Lived on- I lived on campus my first year. And then I moved off, I moved to an off-campus apartment. And then I moved off campus entirely and commuted from home in my third year to try and save money. Uh-huh. Um, so I ended up moving back with my, my parent, my mom, to save money in my third year of college. And so, and I wasn't angry at people per se. I just, I just didn't understand the conditions. The inequities. I didn't understand, yeah. that's right. I didn't understand the, the inequities. Yeah. So I think that's what sort of, in many ways, set me up uh, for where I am today. Just that kind of experience of having the privilege of going to UCLA, but also being brought up in a community that had a lot of qualities of equity, like your neighbor and your, mm-hmm. you know, your all your neighbors and mm-hmm. your interaction with them. But at the same time, the struggles That's right. yeah, that That's right. come with when you don't have as much, much means and also the violence really it sounded like that was one of the biggest turning points was not necessarily the economics, but it was more the violence that started surfacing or bubbling up in the 90s. Was that what you would say? Yeah, I would say that was a, you know, violence and gangs really became uh, a significant problem, right, in our communities at that time. And And they had been around for a while. Oh, they were. They had been around, but but it didn't seem as bad as it was until the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, that's really when sort of a, a, there was this major sort of gun violence epidemic. In fact, so much so that I remember when I was 14 years old, I did a video with the California Wellness Foundation. I didn't realize who they were or what they did <laughs> at the time, but we did a video that was an anti-gun violence campaign video. So actually, there's some video of me out there when I was 14 or 15 years old really? talking Aww. about putting an end to gun violence. You were already activists. I was already right doing on. it. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think I think it's a it was an interesting dynamic. And I think coming to a place like UCLA, I I just didn't know this world existed. Right. But when I got here, you know, uh, you know, I worked hard in my first year, was able to make it through and continued on. And then by my third year, I went to study abroad in South Africa. And my trip in South Africa was life changing. It was, you know, the first time I had seen sort of the type of poverty that was very different from what, I, from what I had experienced here. I learned that poverty is relative. But when I saw, you know, kids homeless and on the streets, and I saw um, these informal townships, formerly called shanty towns, right? Uh-huh. And I saw homes where, you know, there was mud floors, but people had cardboard boxes and aluminum or tin roofs. In some, in some cases, no roofs at all, just, you know, tarp. I really began to understand that while I had grown up in poverty, my poverty was relative. And in many ways, I had a lot of privilege here. And it doesn't, it doesn't take away from social you know, inequity or inequality here in our states, but it put things into perspective for me. So I think my time in South Africa helped me really understand not only what social inequality looked like here in America, but what it looked like around the world. And it was the first time that I was able to situate my own privilege as a UCLA student in, in sort of a, a larger global context. Right. So I was becoming socially aware. I was becoming personally aware. But then this sort of global awareness sort of hit me smack dab in the face. Right. Because uh-huh. I saw myself as being this kid who, who struggled. Right. Whose dad was in jail and mom you know, most struggled to make ends meet. And when we were evicted, we moved around and had all these challenges growing up. But when I went to South Africa, I saw the beauty that exists there, the love that people have for each other, the the willingness to give, the sense of collectivism, the taking care of each other. But I also saw a level of poverty that I didn't know existed either. Uh-huh. So understanding that experience and then understanding my position here on this university, I made a commitment at that point in my life. I was 20 years old when I came back. I made a, co- a commitment at that point in my life to dedicate my life to addressing inequality and inequities, right? Yeah. I made a, I made a commitment to not suffer the suffering, right? It did not make sense to me that we could have the richest country in the history of the world and yet have such a large degree of inequality, right? And not just here, but around the world. There's enough to go around. Yeah. There's enough, there are enough resources. There's enough wealth. There, That's right. There's enough to go around. There, yeah. There's an abundance. We waste 40% of our food here in the U.S., right. right? Yeah. So why are people going to bed hungry? It still makes no sense to me. Yeah. So so I think I think that awakening and that moment is what helped to 
propel me to the next step. So I was staying on the East Coast at the time with a friend. And, and when I was staying with my friend, I was in Jersey, in Southern Jersey on September 11th, and I saw the smoke come down from the towers. I was right in the sort of, uh, there's a little peninsula that sticks out in Southern Jersey around uh, Long Branch. Um, and I was staying in Coast Neck at the time. I was actually working in Neptune for a summer job. And I saw the smoke and the plume come down from the tower. The towers, when the, when the planes flew into the World Trade Center, it radically sort of reshaped my worldview and helped me understand that if I wanted to be an agent of, an agent of change, that I needed to stand up and defend my home, my family, the place that I call home. And so I decided to leave UCLA and to sign up and join the Navy. I was in the Navy for about five years, I uh, got deployed uh, on a ship for about a year. Uh, we went around the world and then I came back and got deployed to Iraq and served in Iraq from February to August of 2005. And then I came back and ended my service and then returned to UCLA. And that's where I got deeply involved in on-campus organizing. And that, I think, in, in many ways is what shaped my trajectory to this day. I'll return to the subject of you being deployed in those formative years that must have happened during that period of five years, which is pretty something. I want to get back, though, to one piece of your story, which really strikes me as really telling about who you are, which is you have incredible empathy. And I've learned recently with the Semi Healthy Campus Initiative and Gage Well Pod, the difference between empathy and compassion. You have both, clearly. And I just find it quite fascinating to me how empathetic you are, which really is the sense of being open to others and really being able to accept others for who they are. And your compassion is really the action that you take. So you're really doing, you're operating on both levels. And I just recently came back from the Robert Wood Johnson Sharing Knowledge Conference in Houston. And I learned some really interesting data around lower socioeconomic happiness among different racial groups and, and ethnic groups. And individuals who live in the lower socioeconomic bracket that are African-American are three times more likely to be happy compared to their Caucasian counterparts. And Latinos are two times more likely. And the hypothesis was, and I, what you mentioned early with your, your um, church and everything, the hypothesis is that there's a sense of community that's created by African-American communities in the lower socioeconomic bracket that enhances their well-being. And I feel my observation is that when people have that sense of well-being, they can operationalize empathy and compassion and they might not be natural at it. I think you are, but others can learn by mm -hmm. by observing and participating. And so it, it seems to me that you just even when you were, what, 14 and you were being filmed for mm -hmm. the anti-gun, I mean, you were already feeling the sense of not only being empathetic, but wanting to take action for your community. I find that really telling about all your sort of pivots in your life, like the fact that you wanted to then protect our whole country and what we stand for. And you felt that we had so much to offer for the world and to keep that going. So I'd love to know, like in your five years in the Navy, how did you reflect on that first motivation of join, joining the Navy? And was there any sort of reflection or transformation that you felt happened during that period? Yes, quite a bit, actually. So when I um, first joined the military, I went in with, with a sort of an already sort of a strong sense of pride. You know, one, because I, I was a UCLA student. So I was like, OK, I can do this. I felt pretty confident in my ability to, to be in the military. But then two, I knew for me I was doing it because I wanted to be in service. But as I continued on, as we steamed or toured around the world, and I got to visit other people in other countries. Is that the word steam yeah, when you go steam. around on yeah. the boat? Yeah, we're actually on the I ship. I like that. Uh, <laughs> or um, ship, I guess yeah. it's not called a boat. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it's it's ship or boat. Oh, yeah. So so when we were when we were underway, so that means we were we were sailing around the world, uh, and I'm I, you know started going to different countries. I began to see how people lived in other places and spaces. Right? So we went to Hawaii, went to Japan, Brunei, Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, Thailand, Indonesia, East Timor, the Philippines, Singapore, Hong Kong. So I went to quite a bit of Australia, to quite a few places in Southeast Asia. And I was able to, 
one of the things I learned being in the military, especially at that age, was that Americans, especially folk who are in the military, really are ambassadors for our ideals around the world. And this relationship that our military has, especially in the Navy, uh, because we travel, has with other nations is not always about the idea of defending against conflict, right? Sometimes it's really about building stronger relationships between our country, between the people and each other. Here's Here's a good example. We landed in Australia and there was a group of sort of, I don't remember which war veterans they were, but there were a group of veterans who were sitting at the dock and they had welcome signs for us. And the welcome signs were like, thank you to our American partners. We'll always be here for you. Australia will forever be your friend. We're forever grateful. And uh, and I learned that that was because we helped to protect Australia during World War II, right? So the alliance that we built with Australia goes back more than half a century because we've had such a strong relationship. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons why they came and they, they have our back around the world in our military uh, efforts is because we defended and protected them in their in their greatest hour of need. And that relationship between the people stays strong. Right. So as Americans, when we went over, we were treated with respect and kindness and people love to see us. Right. And we treated folk with kindness and respect. And, you know, we would go to the pub and share stories and talk. Right. So so those experiences. But I also remember going to a place in Australia where there was a gentleman who said to me, you know, and, and by the way, I love Australia, so this is not uh, in any way to to throw a dig at the country. But there was an individual there who said to me, hey, you know what? I love what your black people are doing in your country. They're doing great, right? He's like, look at, I think at the time, it was like 50 Cent who was rapping and, and playing a song and Snoop Dogg. He's like, look at 50 Cent. Look at Snoop Dogg. They're out there. They're on the television. They're doing well. So like, why can't our Aboriginal people do like that? You know, why can't our Indigenous people do better? So I think you need to be more like you blacks in America. And it was, it was honestly, it was one of the first times I sort of had somebody say something like that to me. And and to your point about empathy, I I, I took a step back and I, I didn't find myself getting offended. But I wanted to understand, like, why? Where would this, where's this coming from? Like, why would he, why would he say this, right? Where, like, that's, it's insensitive, but why, like, what is it he's trying to accomplish? So one of the things that I think being in the military helped me do is it helped me learn how to try and see things from multiple people's experiences or or the eyes of multiple groups of people, right? So being in Thailand, wanting to see it from the perspective of Thais, or being in Singapore, right? And wanting to see it from the perspective of Singaporeans and wanting to understand, like, what is it that people around the world believe and why do they believe it the way they do? And how do they see it the way they do? As opposed to approaching it from from saying, look, where I'm right, and I need to be right all the time. And and this is what it ought to be. And this is how it ought to be. No, I think being in the military and a lot of folk, I believe in the military are like this. They're open. They're, they're typically very open-minded. They understand, at least folk in the military who, who get to travel often, they get to see things from another culture, from another perspective. And I think it makes us better Americans. So that, I think that's sort of an example transformation that I experienced. I also, when I got to um, Iraq, Living in that experience, having, uh, you know, bombs land all around me and explosions happen every night and gunfire outside our base. You know, I came to appreciate life in a very sort of dynamic way. Right. I think being over there, I understood that I could die at any moment. You know, we had a mortar come in on our base and kill some people on our base when I was there uh, near the commissary. And and I remember we had a, we had another we had more mortars that actually landed on the barracks right next to mine, caused shrapnel to hit some of the uh, military personnel that were that were there. Fortunately, it didn't explode, so they did not die. And this is I, I wish I still had these pictures. I, I I don't have them anymore. But it was li- my 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 unit. My barrack was right here, and then the the one right next door was the one that got hit. So I think I think it was. Um, you know, I came to understand and appreciate that I'm not promised tomorrow, right? right. There's no promising, there, there's, there's, there's no promise of tomorrow. And so I think that realization is what drove me to understand, in many ways, how to give my fullest and live my fullest life with every breath I have. Uh-huh. So I came back from Iraq quite a bit hypervigilant. What do you mean was, by that? 
well, just, you know, you know, still feeling the need to, to defend and protect myself and to protect my, my space without a whole lot of energy, you know, adrenaline sort of fully, fully rushing and understood. But, but I think in, in that context, I understood that it was important for me to, to live my best and greatest life. It was important for me to give my all to whatever it is that I chose to do. Mm-hmm. So when I came back from the military and came back here to UCLA, you know, I would have a 10-page paper and I'm like, oh, I can knock that out. That's not a problem, <laughs> you know? So suddenly a 10-page paper seemed like, you know, I was not like, oh, that's, this, task. Is, <laughs> this is nothing compared to, you know, these explosions that, right. you know, I live with. For six months. What was right? your What was your role in the military? So I did PAM personnel, and my job in Iraq, in particular, was to go overseas uh, for Navy Central Command to help establish a naval support unit in theater, so in the combat zone, because we had Navy personnel who were embedded in um, the Army with the Marines or with the, with the Air Force to help provide expertise to the other branches of the military. So what often happens is you have what's basically called sort of joint forces Uh and all, you know, all the major branches of the military go in to coordinate and they have to coordinate with each other. They have different chains of command, right? The Marines are run by, by uh, the commandant, the army has, you know, generals, right? So everyone, everyone is separate but we have to coordinate with each other. So my job was to coordinate on behalf of the personnel who were being deployed in service of those, those efforts. Uh. So we have, for example, military working dog teams, which were bomb sniffing dog teams or security teams from the Navy. They would come out and operate as a unit. And my job was to get them placed to where they needed to go to make sure they were on contract, to make sure they were realistic. One of the one of the big challenges we had at the start of the war, people people don't don't think about this, but we activated our reservists. Right. So we Uh have a, a large reserve force in activating our reservists. Sometimes it would be activated and deployed, but they weren't actually brought onto payroll and they weren't put into the system. So they would get to Iraq and I had a number of cases where. I would have to troubleshoot, actually get them into the system, make sure they're getting paid. We had one particular situation where a reservist hadn't been paid for four months. Oh, wow. Um, and they probably had family. And he had family. He was, worried about losing, he was worried about losing us. How, oh, fortunately, wow. right, we have, like, laws that, that yeah, yeah. you know, protect uh, veterans in that case when that's happening, when we go to war. Because, you know, it's, it's, things, it's, happen. It's, things happen. Yeah, yeah. So, so my job was to take care of stuff like that, oh. right, to make sure that if— God forbid somebody died that I got them home. Right? Uh, that was my job. Uh-huh. And to make sure that people got to where they needed to go, to get to their duty station, to pick them up when they landed in the airport, to, you know, get them to their barracks and get them from their barracks to their 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 billet or their job, right? To make sure that, uh, you know, I would fly out to forward operating bases to go re-enlist them. So stuff like that. What it sounds like to me is that what you did while you were in service was quite remarkable in terms of laying down the foundation of, of your skill building that could really help you launch your social justice learning Institute. That was part of your PhD, right? That's right. That you uh, proposed and actually implemented. That's right. That's right. Explain to me how this all knits together your social justice learning Institute, which, you know, the goal is to create thriving communities, which it seems to be was what you were even trying to do when you were a teenager with the anti-gun campaign you were working on. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I often attribute uh, quite a bit of my success to my military service. And I do so because one of the things that I had to learn when I went to Iraq was how to be entrepreneurial. There, I was one of the first people there to help establish this unit. So I had to establish a budget. I had to build a, uh, I had to literally, I had to fly to Bahrain at some point to go get a scanner and fly back with it on a plane so that I could send the paperwork in so that people would actually be processed in Navy Central Command uh, in Bahrain, right? I, I mean, there were things that I had to learn how to do and, and, and no was never acceptable. No, and it can't be done is never an answer. And so one of the beautiful things about, I think, being in the military is that there's a saying we have, which is, I don't know is not an answer. So you never go back to your supervisor, to your command team and say, well, sorry, chief, I couldn't figure that out. Or sorry, sir, I don't know. That's that's not acceptable. So you have to come back with, well, this is what I attempted to do. This is why, you know, would you approve? Do you disapprove? What should, what should I do? Right. There's always you always have to have 
always need to be thinking about what needs to happen in order to accomplish the mission or accomplish the goal. The other, I think, thing that helped me out in terms of being prepared to launch the Social Justice Learning Institute uh, was that I had worked on a second degree while I was in the military. So I actually have two bachelor's degrees. So that's why I think wow. um, the idea of having uh, uh, being a triple Bruin uh, came to bear because I have another degree that was focused on that that was in liberal studies, but it was focused on business management. Huh. And so all my courses were business management, you know, business ethics, business contracting, team building, communications. So it was all about business management. And so when I got out of the military, I sort of had both a set of skills as well as sort of an educational background to help establish, you know, the type of entrepreneurial uh, uh, drive and efforts that I wanted to achieve when I came home. Part of what led me to launching the Social Justice Learning Institute was, was in coming back to and returning from Iraq, I had a family member who was shot and killed in front of his house. Mm-hmm. And he died in the that. arms. I was in Los, yeah, I was in Los oh, Angeles. Uh, I, was, I was actually even in San Diego when it happened. And my cousin was shot and killed. And he was, supposed to, he was actually supposed to come and live with me. Oh. And so another one of my cousins had come to live with me. And he said, Dart, if I don't get out of L.A., I'm going to die. And it happened to be him and another cousin. I'll, I'll call the other. I'll call the one that died. We'll call him K for now. Uh, and we'll call the one who came to live with me. We'll say... Adam, right? So Adam came to live with me in San Diego. He's the one who said if he doesn't get out, uh, he's going to die. And then Kay was back in South LA. He was just graduating high school. He had been, not been getting involved. And then Adam went back to go visit Kay and they were targeting Adam and they killed Kay. Oh, wow. And so Kay died in the arms of Adam. Oh. And so when that happened, I was like, we got, you know, we need to do something about yeah. Something needs to happen. I think it was 2005, 2006. Something needs to happen. You know, I said, I have all of these skills. Let me go work with an organization. So I went to the NAACP and I went to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was Dr. King's organization, right? I went to these historic civil rights organizations and I said, hey, I really want to work on this. We got to do something about issues that are facing boys and men of color. And they all said, yeah, we would, you know, we would love to do that. But you know, we need we need a youth leadership coordinator, right? Or uh, we need somebody to help with our labor breakfast. Or we need or we're doing this this fifteen dollar minimum wage organizing. And I said, all oh, that's important, and I love it. I know you have these priorities, and I totally believe in them. But this is what I care about. Can y'all? Can we do something about this? And they're like, yes, 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 we can. But we need to work on these other priorities first. So the other priorities, as important as they were, were not, you know. You know, they say behind every research is a bio, right? So for me, it, it's, it wasn't what was driving my interest. Right. What was driving my interest was my brothers being in jail, my dad being in jail, my cousin having gotten shot and killed recently. And I wanted to do something about those conditions. The kids who were shot and killed while I was growing up that we lost, the ones who were shot and killed when they returned to the community, right? You know, my cousins who were locked up. That's what was driving me. And so... So I decided to do something about it. And so when I was here as an undergrad, I was in a course. And this is after you came this back. This is after I came back. This uh-huh. is in 2006. So were you a senior? I was a, I was a, I was a, still a junior. I was wrapping uh-huh. up. I had one at a quarter, at a year and a quarter left. Uh-huh. And so that, la- that, that's, that spring quarter in March of 2006, I was in a class with a professor here that called on us to create a project to, to, to solve an issue we cared about in the community. And I remember, back to this point earlier about being able to stay up, I remember I worked on that project for 24 hours straight. Oh, my gosh. And I wrote a paper. By the way, all you listeners, we don't approve of 24-hour <laughs> papers. But that's how motivated I was, right? I was so motivated. I know. You can't help um, it sometimes. I was, I was in it. I was like, no, I'm going to do something. And this is what I mean by having access to the resources that are on this campus, right? I was able to go stay at Powell. I was able to study at YRL, right? I was able to, uh, at the Young Research Library, I was able to study on campus, uh, go back to my department. And so, so and pull and draw upon access to research here to create and evaluate, or rather to evaluate the literature in the field, but then to create something that was based upon that literature. And I didn't just do it, and I didn't just, finish it in 24 hours, I really sort of 
conceptualize it and and put a sort of put a framework to it and I and and continue to work on it. And then I submitted that paper, and that paper got me noticed by the undergraduate research scholarship program, wow. a research scholarship program, and in the McNair Scholars Program over in AAP, and they they invited me to apply to become a McNair Research Scholar. Ooh. So then I became a McNair, so then I applied and I got in and began to conduct research and then began to refine this proposal, refine this idea, and it be, essentially became my thesis for the McNair Program, and I went to present it and got a lot of feedback and continued to refine it and then decided that I wanted to execute it. And that execution is what I think led to the founding of the organization. The program was was essentially to help young men of color to help reduce recidivism, imprisonment, and gain involvement amongst young men of color um, to address the very issues that I, you know, I had been dealing with as a child growing up. And it was in the context of doing that work that my first sort of graduating cohort out of out of the eight young men that I had worked with, they all went to a two or four year university uh-huh. or vocational trade so these school. High schoolers, you were these were all high school young yeah. men. I went back to my alma mater, went back to Morningside High School in Inglewood, went back to my community, and began to work with my high school and uh, my former high school to run this program, and it, it demonstrated early success. Yeah. And then uh, I got some attention around it, and folk were like, "Well, what can we do to support you?" Uh, so there's a postdoc here at UCLA who had heard about it, and he said, man, he was also a McNair Research Scholar. Yeah. He was doing his postdoc in microbiology, and we got together and we had lunch. He says, well, hot, man, I would love to support this work. What can I do? I want to get involved. And I said, I said, well, we could start a nonprofit. <laughs> we could sustain it. And he's like, well, do you know anything about starting a nonprofit? I said, no. He said, well, you know, we're two smart guys. We can figure it out, you know. I was like, oh, okay, well, then let's do it. And that's how I got started. Wow. Right? It wasn't it wasn't this master plan. It wasn't a desire to be a nonprofit executive director. It was just simply wanting to do the work and find a way to, to resources right. and sustain it. And so that's how SGLI came to be. But it wasn't just about early on, because of the work I was doing with the young men, we were engaged in youth participatory action research. So they were identifying issues in their community and trying to solve issues. And that's part of what drove their educational interest, right? Because I had learned early on that students wouldn't be interested in school at, at sort of the secondary level in high school unless there was something that was connected to what they cared about in their own lives. It had to be relevant to them. And so we taught them how to become, I taught them how to become critical researchers or youth researchers who, you know, created a problem statement and created a research question and utilized quantitative and qualitative methods to go out and engage in a study, to analyze their claims, to, you know, disseminate their findings, to present their their research at conferences based upon a model that existed here at UCLA with the Council of Youth Research and the Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access. And so my program was sort of a combination of the use of YPAR as well as this connection to culturally relevant and heritage-based education, identity development, shifting mindsets, addressing trauma, and sort of a, a series of things. And it was out of that work with those young men that we decided to get involved in things like community gardens. Because when they did research on issues that they were dealing with in our community, they said, well, look, if, if we want to live healthier lives, we need to have access to healthy food. Right. We want to live healthier lives. We need to address public transportation issues. We want to live healthier lives and we need to address housing. So they're the ones who taught me about the multiple social determinants of health. Uh Right. It was through lived experience. They're the ones who got out in the community and said, we need to build a community garden. They're the ones who said our schools are dilapidated. We need to raise money to fix these schools. Uh It was our young folk. And we did it. Yeah. Right. We did the work. As an Eaglewood. Yeah. Uh, school board member. That's right. So, so the young folk. Before I was a school board member, before I got elected, and uh, I got elected in 2015, but in 2012, uh, we all came together and ran a bond campaign and raised 90 million dollars for the schools, That's right, incredible. to help renovate the schools, right. But that came from what young folk wanted to see happen in their community, yeah. what residents said they wanted to see happen. And are so, you seeing improvement in the schools now? We're structuring. I've been to two groundbreakings. This. Yeah. One this year, one last year. We are renovating existing school facilities. We've been able to bring in some additional investment now. It has really laid the foundation for the rebuilding of one of our high schools, right? So we're actually on the road to completely renovating the entire district. But that was because those young folk It was their identification. And they knew it wasn't going to benefit them, right? They knew this wasn't going to happen while they were in school. But this was about their brothers and their sisters Uh and their cousins, that sort of sense of collectivism. 
Yeah. So, you know, what do you, what do you think? I mean, it sounds like there's so many things that you could be proud of through your work with your social justice learning Institute, but what would you say is the thing you're the most proud of and what were the hardest moments? So I'm most proud of the young folk and the residents that have taken on issues and have actually seen them through to create change. When our young men launched the city's first community garden, that got residents involved. And then there was this young lady named Nicole Steele who had just moved from Baltimore to Inglewood. And she had this idea of building 100 gardens in the community. And Nicole had heard about our community garden because we were working with the mayor at the time, uh, working with the city to help the city become a healthy eating act, a living zone, a hill zone, um, under sort of the Kaiser Hill Zones initiative. And so... And we were working to plan out a farmer's market for the city and improve environmental sustainability. So the work that the young folk were doing really began to sort of scale up to community-wide change. So Nicole had heard about it, and she says, well, I want to build a community garden. Can I do one at my home? You know, in fact, I had this idea for building, you know, building 100. And I said, well, look, this is, as an organization, where our primary goal was not just about helping these young men. Um, the program that we had at the time was about helping them helping to reduce recidivism, incarceration, and um, gang involvement. But it was really not just about that. It was about helping our young folk understand their agency so they can go on and facilitate a change in material conditions. So then we invited Nicole to be a part of the work and then combined her 100 Seeds of Change idea with the work that the young men were doing and committed to building 100 school, community, and home gardens in throughout our city and, and, throughout, and throughout the city of Inglewood and South Los Angeles. Which today we built 108. Whoa, congrats. Um, and um, wow. including, you know, a dozen or so school gardens and community gardens, as well as, you know, quite a few home gardens and gardens for people in apartments. Victory and, garden. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And so it was, it was, it, 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 you know, the work itself is what has always driven what SGLI does and the need of the community rather is what's always driven what, what the social justice learning Institute does. And it is prime. We are primarily there to, to help people be empowered. One of the things that I've realized when you ask me what I'm most proud of, I'm most proud of, of what we do, right? We don't do food justice. We don't do community gardens. What does that mean? You don't do food so justice. So we don't do, uh, you know, food justice for us is defined as providing access to affordable, healthy, safe, culturally relevant, locally grown food that is good for the people, the land and the animals. Right. And so that's a result of the work we do. But that's not what we do as an organization. We don't do programs for boys and men of color. So I, I, I had to, it took me a while to really understand this. We do, and what, and as an organization, what we do is we do people building, right? We build people so that people can go on and do things in their communities and for themselves and in their individual lives. And we translate healthy eating and active living into strategies that are applicable for folks so they can address diabetes. We provide resources for them so they can go out and help each other get into college or organize with the city of Los Angeles and pass policies that reduce and decriminalize marijuana, for example. So our role as an organization is to build people who can rise up and facilitate change or stand up on their own and facilitate change. And that's what we do. We create people. And it took me a while to really understand that. Right. Uh, And that's what my program was always about. It was about creating young men so they can go out and transform conditions in their community. That's what the garden's about. It's a space to create people who can eat and live healthier lives. And by teaching them nutrition education, because it's, and, and what I think, I think realizing this helped me understand that these issues are not siloed. So, right. and, the, and, and, and this is, here's a good example for this. I have a young person who is going to school, right? And this is a pretty common scenario. I have a young person who's going to school, who's struggling to stay in school, but at home, his parents are barely making enough to cover the cost of rent, so they don't have enough money to send him to school with food. So when he goes to school with his $1 or $2, he's buying bags of Kool-Aid and sugar and gummy worms on the inside, and that gets him through the rest of the day. So he eats that throughout the day because it's sugar, and it powers him so he can get throughout the day. Then he leaves, and he has to walk down the street, sometimes in an unsafe neighborhood, 
or has to navigate that neighborhood so he can get home to be safe. And he gets home and sometimes there's not a solid meal on the table, right? Here's what we've come to realize, that if I were just a housing person, okay, then, yeah, I might be able to address the issue his parents have as it relates to housing. But what about what happens when they're not making enough money and he goes to school and he's trying to survive, right? And he's trying to thrive. And we're not actually addressing the fact that he doesn't have access to healthy food. Or on his way to school, he has to walk, he's walking by Jack in a Box and that's where he's getting his two tacos for the day or Del Taco or Wendy's, right? His his uh, his meal that he puts in his backpack and he saves it with him all day because he doesn't want to eat, quote unquote, county food on the campus. Right. So so we've realized that all of these issues are there's an intersection between they're intersectional. They're not isolated and they cannot be treated in silos. Right. And so we don't have the power to, you know, eliminate liquor stores. Right. Or to build 15 grocery stores in a community. But what I do have the power to do is build the capacity in individuals to go out and generate solutions that will address that very issue that they're uh-huh. concerned about. Right. That's what I do have the power to do. And that's how, for us, education has become such an important tool to facilitate change, to facilitate mindset growth, to facilitate growth and self-efficacy, to motivate folk to facilitate change, to help right. them create a thriving community, to address policies that impact them uh, and contribute to the systemic challenges they deal with. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like the capacity building is not only skill building around certain subject areas or priority areas, but also this feeling that the community can make a difference in their own lives and feeling like they can make change and make it real and happen. I would imagine that looking at you and having grown up in Inglewood, you as a model must also inspire people. Do you ever get that kind of conversation that people say, look at you, you've done it, I can do it too? You know, yes, people say that often, but I try not to push that mantra. What I often try and do is remind people that that they already have agency and power, that they're starting with the same power to do for themselves and other that, that I have, right? right? That really there's nothing special about me. Instead, it was people in my life who helped me understand my own agency, right? right? And so I, I, I try to use it as an example to say, yeah, well, you, you know, yeah, you can do it. Like, it's not even me and I and others might be examples. And I think that's important to have, but really you already know what the conditions are. You already know what you need to do. You already have high aspirations. Here are the strategies. Uh, here are the skills. Here's the training. Uh, here's the information. Here are the resources you need to get to the next level, to get to get through this gap, to get, you know, across these challenges, to, you know, to get beyond this threshold. Here's how I can support you getting there um, because you already have the, you know, the power to make that happen. So I don't know if that, I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah, it does. I totally, I could see that as a, probably a challenge for you because people probably often say that and you have to be sure you don't want it to be all about you as the model because you are, what you're saying is that there's lots of models out there that you can, in different directions that you can build your own capacity and agency and express it in different ways. It doesn't have to be expressed like you. I think it's interesting though, what I have found super cool about, the Seminole Healthy Campus Initiative is actually doing it in my own backyard. Mm-hmm. How does it make you feel doing something in your own backyard where you were brought up? You know, it's home and it feels good, right? These, you know, these are the streets that I used to walk down. These are the streets that I drive down now um, that my students walk down. And to see transformation take place at home uh, is, is fulfilling, right? To see people in our community step up and stand up for themselves is is encouraging and it it sort of helps me have a lot of hope right it's like oh yeah I, i'm not out here by myself being crazy pushing for social justice issues a uh, quick example we had been organizing for rent control in inglewood for a long time uh, for three years and pushing the city to adopt affordable housing policies turning out thousands of people to multiple meetings over a number of years putting a lot of pressure on the city to uh, through through the media through our organizing efforts 
And finally, um, to, because we were talking about what was going on with people in their families. So some families were experiencing rent increases up to 127%, which was atrocious. And so finally, the city came along and just this past uh, March, uh, March of 2019, decided to adopt a temporary rent control ordinance to help stabilize the marketplace while we figure out a long-term solution wow. so that corporate landlords aren't gouging people and entire buildings are not being evicted in mass. Uh-huh. But that took us three years. And while it's a temporary ordinance and it's a small fix, it frankly was a victory that took us three years to achieve. Three years. Rome but wasn't that, built in a day. Sure that's did. our that's our motto. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, you know that that's a good transition to uh, really what might be some of the pressures for that. Are I understand there's some high tech companies like SpaceX and the LA Stadium that are currently undergoing construction, and the LA Clippers currently trying to build an arena in your backyard. And how does that? play into opportunities, but also challenges for you? Well, you know, with with the with all of the development that's occurring in the city of Inglewood, uh, we've begun to see quite a bit of displacement occur in our neighborhoods. And I think that's created a number of challenges. Right? Folks that have been in, the, have been in the community for 20 or 30 years are finding themselves out of a home because their rents are going up and, and because corporate, you know, developers are coming in and they are purchasing up entire sort of buildings and in some cases blocks of units. And and I and I and I understand that. Like I, I get that folk want to maximize profit. We understand that people have a right to make money uh, and to, you know, do so in a way that makes sense for them so that they can be financially viable. Uh, but we also recognize that sometimes the ways in which we go about doing that. Uh, you know, can have a negative effect upon people's lives and upon entire communities. And so while there's been this sort of bittersweet appreciation for and relationship to the development that's occurring with the NFL stadium, uh, the potential Clippers arena, and even SpaceX, which is next door in, in, in Hawthorne, it has created a number of pressures in our community that has made it difficult for everyone to benefit and everyone to thrive. The The other, I think, there are certainly good things that happen to communities when you can increase your revenue and bring in sort of large corporate partners who, you know, uh, can invest in the infrastructure of a city. It can be helpful when you have the types of projects like with the NFL stadium, for example, where it's going to add 2,500 units to the housing stock. It's helpful when, for example, with that project as well, they're going to add 25 acres of park. We're going to more than double our park space in the city of Inglewood. So there are other benefits associated with the development that, you know, can support the entire community. But what good does that do if the people who live there won't be there to take advantage right. of it when it's built? That's right. Right. Yeah. So I think that's the challenge that we are facing, both the opportunity to become a model city for right. how you do this yeah. with the right policies, with home ownership programs, with business incubation and support programs, with anti-displacement strategies, with land trusts that are, you know, putting housing uh, stock into the public hands. There are a number of things that we can do with entrepreneurship zones or or enterprise zones. Hey, there are even some communities that have done like local currencies, right, that have helped to keep money within a community. Here in the U.S., there's the local currency movement, right? There are radical ideas that we could explore, not saying they're all right or they're going to work, but to not, but but we have a. I think we have a responsibility to put some energy into figuring it out, so that we fundamentally address inequity in communities. Right? So the first thing you've done is put this cap on raising rent. Well, I didn't do it. No, the city but the did city it. did it. But um, is that a good first step? Do you I think, think I think I think it's a great initial step to help send the message to corporate landlords that rent gouging is not going to be tolerated. Right. Right. Yeah. That 127% rent increase is just, that's not going to fly. And that that was happening throughout the entire city. I think we have done other things as well. So we've organized uh, in the state. We've, you know, pushed the city to follow state laws as it relates to housing. So there, there, I think there, there are a number of strategies that we've engaged in. We've mobilized the capacity of community members so they can go visit their city council members, go to Sacramento and tell their stories and have brought in dollars to help, you know, demand benefits 
right, from all of these developers who are coming into the community. Right. So, so there are, I think, multiple strategies that we're engaged in to help ensure that we address this issue. And it brings me back to what it means to live a healthy life. If you have these large investors and developers coming into a community where there's been historical concentrated disadvantage, the potential to displace those people increases dramatically. And so what ends up happening to, to displaced peoples is they go live in another community where there's concentrated disadvantage that they can afford, right? They go sort of live in another community where they're not able to access a living wage. So all it does is export the problem that people are facing to another physical location, right? right? Where there may not be nearly as many resources or infrastructure in place. Or at least there may not, not your be community. Clinics. And it's not, it's not home. Yeah. That's right. So now you're no longer living in this place that you grew up in, where your grandmother's from, you know, where your aunts and uncles live. Uh, your job might be, you know, if you have to go live in the Inland Empire now, which is where a lot of folk have moved, you might have to do that 45-minute, hour-and-a-half commute coming from That's Riverside so into Los Angeles. Hard. And now suddenly, your $15 an hour has, you know, the, the sort of time value that you are spending on the road is just right. decreased and diminished, you know, significantly, right? Yeah. I'd like to sort of pivot to another subject because you've been doing your work in Inglewood, really, it was a result of your academic work here at UCLA. Now you've returned back home, so to speak, back to your Bruin home, to your backyard here, and you're teaching. Mm -hmm. And I know you're teaching the life skills course, and I'd love you to explain to me what have been your key takeaways from that particular uh, experience, teaching the life skills course to undergraduates. And and what would you say you'd like to sort of give advice to our listeners in terms of like what they could maybe practice just as a simple step and then maybe come here and take the class? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's, it's interesting because I have come to find through teaching the life skills course here on campus that our students are not only brilliant, but they're dealing with a number of stress, you know, stressors in their lives, right? Challenges in their lives. And and one of the things I've come to really appreciate about the course is that it helps to teach them skills so that they can navigate those stressors. And so a major takeaway I have is that it's important for each and every single one of us to understand what contributes to the stress in our lives and then to take active steps to address that stress. So for some of us, it might be that we need to sleep more right? And get more rest. For others, it might be that, you know, we need to pursue counseling. For others, it might be that that we need to exercise more or, you know, develop problem-solving problem, co- problem solving coping strategies, right? So so what's, what's really great about the course is that it provides an opportunity and space for students to explore what works best for them on an individual level. One of the things that we do in the course is we teach students how to meditate. And that's super exciting and helpful. And I tell you, Every single time we do it in the classroom, I have to sort of, you know, reorient myself. I'm like, okay, I just, I got to wake up. It's time. It's 13 to now. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't fall asleep. I just, it's so soothing, right? Yes. It has been, it has been a helpful thing for me personally in the class. And I think a strategy uh, that has been proven to, you know, improve people's lives to help them address issues related to stress. Um, And so one of the recommendations I would give to anybody who's listening is to develop sort of your own meditative practice, right? Be it listening to the type of music you, you, you like and taking the time to breathe and, uh, or, or, uh, you know, learning how to be mindful uh, when you eat, Uh, figure out how you can take the time to allow yourself to come down off of the highs of life, right? Uh, And to be centered in the present, to be focused on the present, to experience the now with a sense of peace and calmness. Uh, I think that's that's done wonders. And many of our students have shared that when they run into a problem with their family, right? Or or with the person they're dating or with um, their friend, right? You know, we had a student share uh, that someone had gone into her closet and took her, one of our roommates had gone into her closet and taken her clothes without asking. And she oh, had an opportunity. No, no. <laughs> big no, no, <laughs> people, my family anyway. But people, but people do it, right? Oh yeah. So she learned how to cope with it. In the past, yeah. she said she would have just been quiet and yeah. stressed her out. And, you know, she would have, 
been angry about it, but she wouldn't have done anything about it. So I think through the course, she learned first how to meditate to sort of get her emotions under control. But then two, how to approach it utilizing a set of skills that we taught her about how you communicate in situations like that. And she was able to get her clothes back and uh, get her in her room and apologized. And they are now, you know, doing better. Yeah. So I think understanding these things um, and understanding how to apply practices like meditation to one's life can be very, very helpful. Yeah. Have you been teaching that now? Have you translated some of your experiences with life skills to your students, your high school students? I have. In in, in my course with my uh, high school age youth and my college age youth, um, who are are my alums, we did a lot of work that focused and centered on trauma and healing. But I think what life skills has helped me do is, is take it a step further by teaching them specific types of skills that are valuable, like how to use I statements, right? Which, you know, I learned using, um, I learned years ago growing up, I was trained on years ago in my um, communications training courses. But I think seeing it applied in this way, you know, sort of at at the university level with the framework that we have, which is sort of part theory, part practice, has, has allowed me to understand how to better strengthen the work I do with young folk in high schools. Uh-huh. So I, I'd like to end this with uh, what keeps you up at night. And if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, mm-hmm. what age would you go back to and what would your advice be? I think what keeps me up at night is the idea that I might not be doing enough because the problems can seem so big, Right. Uh, And they take so long and in some cases can be so intractable. It feels like there's more that needs to be done and that, you know, I just I want to do more all the time. But if I had any if I had to give myself any advice, I would go back to my younger self and say younger self meaning like uh, like my not 40 self uh, and say (laughs) anytime uh, before that. (laughs) Anytime. Yeah. So so my college days. And I would say to myself, D'Artagnan, you know, you're, you're going to do this work and it's going to be okay, but you got to take time for yourself. You have to breathe, right? You have to be okay with resting. You have to be okay. You have to care for your health. You have to care for your own well-being as well. Right? Yeah. If I, you know, and you have to prioritize that, that that's not, that can't be secondary or it can't be sort of a tertiary priority. You have to make it a priority because none of this matters if you don't have your health. That's right. Right. And so it's something that I realize now that I didn't realize even a year ago. Uh, My wife and I finally took our first vacation in 12 years. Wow. First vacation in 12 years. Huh. Um, And that was without kids. Without kids. (laughs) Without kids. We left them at home with grandma. It was a real vacation. (laughs) She didn't want to go at first, but once we went, she said, oh, we need to do this every year. Uh. So, so, so that's what I would say. It's, it is okay to, to slow down and care for yourself. Yeah. I think that gets back to your first comment about what keeps you up at night because you are so driven and you don't feel like you're doing enough. And so that kind of rub that you have where you know you need to take care of yourself at the same time. Mm -hmm. And there's a great lawyer that is an advocacy lawyer that has done incredible work here in California. His name is Harry Snyder. And he gave me a great piece of advice because it really applies to people like you who have so much compassion uh, and want to help it. His advice was that there's so many causes, there's so many things you can do, but you can't do everything and you can't get yourself burnt out because you will not be effective if you are burnt out. Mm-hmm. So I feel that, you know, you clearly did incredible focus on your social justice learning Institute and have been able to really affect change. And I know you've worked now to translate it to other cities Mm-hmm. And you're not running those, right? Other people. Are. No, no, no. <laughs> we have we've hired other staff now to run. We have a Houston office, so now my my staff out in Houston is running that that space. Yeah. No, I'm not running those. I am out there frequently, though. Yeah, but those are the kinds of things that you can uh, do, and you have done. So you've clearly made that mark. And good for you for taking vacation. <laughs> and uh, for people who want to do meditation or guided meditation, which I think you do use in your life skills courses, the Mark Mind 
the Mindful Awareness Research Center here at UCLA offers up free guided meditations that you can download from iTunes, marc.ucla.edu. Fantastic. So uh, anything else before we wrap up that you'd like to share? Or? No, I, I'm just, you know, I'm grateful to to be able to participate in this work. And thank you for having me today. Um, you know, I think it's it's really important to take the time to reflect, right? Because that reflection allows us to, to determine where we're going to move forward next. And so, uh, again, thank you for, you know, for having me today. And I, I look forward to hearing this when it comes out. Yeah. Well, Dirt, I just can't say how much we're so grateful that you're part of the UCLA community that I've gotten to know you in so many different ways. And and it's really been an honor and I'm grateful for what you're doing with our students and also our community, especially in Englewood. But I think you're a model for other communities. So your idea of having the capacity and inspiring others to do good work, I think is really a great model and one that I think will really propagate a culture of health and well-being in our in our society. So we'll keep at it, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Live Well Today. Today's podcast was brought to you by UCLA Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center. To learn more about the life skills course and D'Artagnan's leadership in his community and others, please visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcast. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, make sure to follow our Twitter and Instagram at livewell underscore UCLA. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.